Zechariah chapter 6 tonight. Take your Bibles from there if you will. Continue our study in the book of Zechariah as we work our way through the larger study of the minor prophets. Good to see you tonight. Normally I take a whole chapter in view, but uh, tonight we're just going to do half the chapter, the first eight verses. This really ends the series of visions, dreams that Zechariah had. So I want to kind of stop there because there's a juxtaposition I want to make between this vision and the very first one. So let's look at our Bibles at the first verse of Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah said, And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass, in the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot grizzled or spotted and bay, it's dark brown horses. Then I answered and said to the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from the standing before the Lord of all the earth. And the black horses um, which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them, and the grizzled the spotted go forth toward the south country, and the bay went forth, and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro, thro, fo, to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. Then cried he upon me, and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. Once again, we have an interesting vision, as all of Zechariah's visions have been interesting. But contextually and historically, they, they, they do have meaning that we, we can uh, discern tonight. So we're going to ask the Lord to help us do that, and then, of course, to make application. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the day, for this time of assembling together around your word. Lord, we, uh, we do pray for our camper tonight. I pray their services this evening, Lord, would speak to their hearts, and Lord, meet the needs that they're facing in life. Lord, they would strengthen their faith. Lord, we ask that you do the same for us tonight, that you would speak to our hearts this evening and comfort us and encourage us and admonish us through your word. And we ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. Chapter 6 of the book of Zechariah brings us to the eighth and final dream, uh, we call it vision, that God gives the prophet Zechariah. All these have been quite fascinating and interesting. Just last week we saw the vision of uh, these winged creatures carrying a basket with an idol inside of it, and really talked about the importance of not allowing the influences of Babylon into our life, into our hearts, into our church, uh, that we need to send things of the world, you know, back to the world and not bring them into our hearts and not bring them to our home and certainly not bring them into the church. And tonight, a series of visions about the future and, and really their immediate context is given again. Each of these eight dreams was a picture of what and how God was working in the events and circumstances of the contemporary Jewish experience. What was a contemporary Jewish experience? Well, 70 years earlier, the majority had been a little more than that, but a little over 70 years before, uh, the nation of Judah was overturned. The city of Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians. 
And we learn from the prophet Jeremiah that they were prophesied to spend their 70 years um, for their idolatry, for their fornication spiritually, of not serving God, of not keeping the covenant that he established with Moses, that they would be his people and he would be their God. They had violated that in pursuing idols and idolatry. So they go to captivity. Seven years are completed, and now they are filtering back home under Zerubbabel and Joshua, the first 50,000 come home, and then others as a progression of people coming not just really from Canaan, um, I'm, I'm sorry, from the region of Babylon, but really around the globe at that time, Jewish people were being encouraged to come back to rebuild the city, to rebuild national identity, and specifically to rebuild the temple. Well, all these dreams were given via angel to this man, Zechariah, who then would preach these visions to the people for admonition and encouragement. And really, this, the summation of these dreams was have hope, have faith in God, trust Him, believe that the events that you see are uh, God in, is involved in that, He is working. In these visions, God was establishing and reaffirming that He was working. And I might say it this way, God was uh, reestablishing and teaching theology. He was teaching them truth about Himself and how He worked with His people and about the covenant and, and how they were to keep it. And, and He would bless them if they did. So these visions were really a type of reaffirming or establishing a theology about the truthfulness of God of who he was and how he would act, about his working involvement in the world, and again, especially about the theology of how God works with his people, how that relationship functions. If I was to take everything that God was teaching in these dreams of Zechariah, all these visions, and if I had to distill it in one word, I think I would choose the word sovereignty. God was teaching through these multiplicity of dreams that he's in control. No matter what you see around you, how uncertain the times, no matter how high gas prices go up or how high inflation may go, no matter how unsettling the world may seem in Ukraine or, or in Europe, no matter what we think about the global economy or the political situation, God is saying to those people what He's saying to us today, He's sovereign that He's in control, that He sits on the throne, that nothing is being lost on Him, that He, he is the grand mastermind behind uh, time as we know it. Things are moving um, uh, at His command to a, a final fulfillment of His purposes. And He wants the people to know that what they see could be, for some of them it was encouraging, some of them was discouraging because of the overwhelming tasks that before them. But He was basically saying, I, I want you to understand the theology that I'm sovereign, I'm in control, world events are happening uh, at, at my direction, the heart of the king uh, is in my hands. He, he, he's, he wants them to understand these things so they'll act upon those things in faith and hope. Right. So they'll serve him, they'll have hope in him, and that will be displayed in their life. So really all these dreams in a way is about the sovereignty of God and the fact that he has control of the world. Um, and the main thought here is that um, <clears throat> sometimes when we look at the world, uh, for these people, they looked out and they thought, well, seven years was over, they'd be coming home and the millennial reign would start. The Messiah would be revealed. That the purpose of rebuilding the temple would be the usher in the millennial kingdom. But instead, they didn't see that. And, and, and they saw the world kind of at relative peace and um, nothing was happening with Persia. 
And, and so they were confused by this. And God is simply saying, I'm in control despite what you're seeing. And so he's saying, I, I'm in control of all the events of life, including their situation in the recent captivity and now return. Um, just before these events, they, I'm sure, confounded by this, Babylon took them into captivity. And yet, um, after numbers of decades, Persia moved to the forefront of the political world and they conquered Babylon. And so now the, Babylon's no longer the world power, but Persia and Persia is saying you can go home. And there was some concern about going home for reasons that I've mentioned in the past. He's talking about, I've got and I'm in control of the restoration of the Jewish community and really all the rule and reign of the earth. And, and so this is what the messages are about, these, all these dreams. As sovereign, God is above all things. God is in control of all things. And this truth of theology, again, was to inspire trust and hope, reverence, worship, and praise. Another thought being taught here is that as sovereign, his power is omnipotent. So you and I understand God's in control, don't we? Okay. We also understand that God is omnipotent. Omni, all, potent, power, omnipotent, all powerful. We, we understand that that is God. But then we need to be reminded Amen. in our life, in the circumstances we face, that God's in control and he's big enough to handle the mountain. Right? So we, you know, it, it just, you can't repeat these truths big enough. We hear them intellectually, and yet there's going to come a time in our life, as did come the time of this nation, where but we're going to really down deep believe that and trust in this, that God's omnipotent, that he is a source that we again are to trust in when we find ourselves in circumstances beyond our control. And again, this is one of the overarching themes of the book of Zechariah, meant to inspire confidence that God is omnipotent. Um, God wants the people to know that um, He controlled the defeat of Babylon, He controlled the rise of Persia. And yes, you're coming home to a destroyed city, a destroyed temple with uh, enemies who've occupied in the vacuum of you being absent, but you're a few people in comparison, but. Uh, little as much when God is in it, right? Um, we don't win based on talent. We don't win based on ability. We don't win because we have superior forces. If Christians are to win, it's because um, we trust in the Lord the same way David did when he faced Goliath. We don't come to, to face the world's greatest perplexities in our own strength, our own intellect, our own power. As a matter of fact, part of the book of Zechariah's teaching is that human power is always uh, bumps up against the wall being inept, but we're to trust in God's omnipotent power and that their future endeavors and successes were dependent upon trusting God and that for those who had not returned home yet, you can trust me that I'm big enough to see this mission through of rebuilding the temple. So we're understanding that God is establishing these truths again and He's doing so in this final vision. So let's actually look at the vision type very quickly. Starting in verse number one. Once again, an angel directs Zechariah's attention to look up. This is a fairly common theme where Zechariah says, Look up, and what do you see? And this is the third time for sure in a row that Zechariah's been directed to look up, 
and to see something. So this time he looks up and he sees something familiar. He sees four horses. And the horses that he sees are black, they are white, they are red, and then they're speckled and bay horses, something we might call like an Appaloosa. Um, you get the idea. It's a, it's, it's a horse of different colors. And they're issuing or coming forth from between uh, two mountains. And the Bible tells us these are mountains of brass. And they are also pulling chariots. Okay? So uh, horses, maybe four, maybe more than that, representing these colors, pulling chariots coming forth from the mountain. Okay, so some things we know about this immediately um, is that a chariot is an instrument of war. Um, and so there's something happening here militarily. There's some kind of a battle ensuing. The riders are no doubt angelic. And this is a reference back to really the same kind of scene we see at the very first vision in Zechariah chapter 1. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn back to chapter 1. And I want you to look back at the very first vision that Zechariah had beginning in verse number 8. So the first thing that Zechariah sees as God begins to speak to him in this post-exile community are these same four horses. Verse number 8. I saw by night, and behold, a man ride upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were their red horses speckled and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, Okay, now, this is the man on the red horse who's saying this. These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. And they answered the angel Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and at rest. So you guys remember that story? I'm sure that you do, right? I know Brian does remember it. But. So at this time, these were, if you will, scouts. So these four riders and horsemen are attendants who stand before the throne for the Lord's bidding. And they do what he orders and directs. And so he looks at them in Zechariah 1 and he says, you guys go. And I want you to basically go to the four corners of the earth, north, east, west, and south. And I want you to give me, do a recognizant mission for me. I want you to ride and tell me the condition of the earth. What's happening out there? And so they disperse and these riders go ride and they come back and they report to the rider on the, myrtle, on the, the red horse among the myrtle trees. And they say, the world's at peace. So as much as the world can be at peace. Okay. And remember in the study that had relevance because... Um, the children of Israel had come home from Babylon, now defeated by Persia. They were expecting there to maybe be some things that were happening and agitated because the Messiah would rise up and, you know, he would fight for them. But there's no Messiah fighting for them in the earth. And so people are confused. You brought us home to do what? To rebuild a broken temple? There's no Messiah. There's no leader yet. There's no branch as we refer to in the book of Zechariah. And so they're confused by this news of the writers and so the people are probably discouraged. And so um, they were hoping for the millennial reign, and it was just nowhere in sight. So we see that these writers were agents of recognizance in chapter 1. They come back and get a report. And all these visions have ensued, and now we're in the last vision, and God summons them again. Okay? 
So it's kind of completing the story, the beginning and the ending, the, the story of the horsemen. And so now Zachariah looks up again and he sees these same horses, uh, no doubt with the same angelic riders coming forth from the, the mountains. No, most likely mountains are, were thought to be the dwelling place of God. Uh, brass was often used as for weapons of war and in judgment. So the vision is kind of like um, judgments impending. The riders are coming from heaven in judgment. And that's what's happening. And we know that even furthermore because they're carrying chariots. So what we really have is this kind of this army of God. It's overstated. But I wouldn't want to mess with one angel. But anyway... You have this army of God issuing from His throne at His command, and they have a mission. And no doubt it's probably looking at these riders, and language here implies that these horses are ready to go, that they're moving, that they're, they're just waiting for the command to go, and they are set loose to do this. And so we have these, what the Bible calls four spirits or powers of heaven, and they received orders to go forth. In verse 6, um, we see that the chariots are sent in different directions. It's, the language of the Hebrew is less clear here. One is said to go to the north. One is said to follow after. And so the black horses head north and then the white horses follow. Uh, there's a set of horses that the Bible says that go south. And then the last set of horses, the red horse, the command is not clear. It says that they go forth. That is, I don't know if that means they sat still, if they're going to the east. In Jewish thinking, everything, was, everything that was important was east. Um, this is, could have been the Lord Himself on the horse waiting for the report to come back from the military campaign. But basically, they go on a mission. They're going on a military mission. And so the idea is they're going forth to accomplish God's purposes at His order. Then in verse 8, we're given some insight into the mission of the two chariots going north. We don't know about the others, but the two chariots who go north were given some insight to what they do. And here's what they accomplish. And there's more here than it might seem. So if you look at verse 8, I believe, it says these riders who head north, which by the way, north in this historical context was always a reference to the regions of Babylon, Persia, uh, in time, Revelation, Gog, Magog, beyond them, even further north would be Russia, uh, Germany. But for our purposes, north means Babylon, basically. So these, these riders, these two black horses head north in these chariots, and their purpose is to, um, to quiet the spirit of the Lord. Um, it says, these have quieted my spirit. Okay. That may seem confusing. I've talked about two chariots, uh, angelic warriors going forth, and how did they quiet the Lord's Spirit by going to Babylon? Well, the word, the phrase, uh, put to rest or to quiet, means to appease. Okay? So if you do a word study on the phrase, it means to appease. So these two chariots are going north to appease the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, so what's that mean? Well, God used Babylon as an agency to accomplish His, his purposes of judging Israel. But we also know that, is, that Babylon went too far, and multiple times the minor prophets predicted doom and judgment upon Babylon for their role in this. 
Okay? So God promised, He forswear that Babylon would pay for their transgressions against His people. So God's made it super clear His Spirit is bent on the destruction, the vengeance, the, the, of, of um, pained retribu retribution upon Babylon. And so evidently that's exactly what's happened. So in other words, what would it take to appease God's Spirit in the north for them to be conquered, for them to be destroyed? Well, we know that's exactly what happened. And so in the heavenly picture, these chariots go forth, they create the environment, the circumstances in the physical realm where Persia rises up and attacks Babylon. I've rehearsed that story to you in the past. And they are, in fact, overthrown. And God looks at that and says, I'm appeased. That's what I wanted to happen. And it happened. And so that's what's being now rehearsed back via sermon to the people that are coming back to rebuild the temple. The idea is God's spirit is now at quiet. He's been appeased because these angels created the environment where Babylon was overthrown. And so these nations, uh, again, were referenced by the north. We know that chariots, again, represent military might. And God had pronounced judgment on them. And these people had just watched this happen. And so this was a historical event that had just transpired some years earlier. They, they watched this. But here's the point. Here's the point. They're witnessing all this. They see it. And God's saying, hey, all this stuff's happening because I made it happen. Okay? That's, that's the point of the story. They had been through this. This, is already, this had already historically occurred. But God's looking at them and saying, this is why it happened. I made it happen. It'd be like when you watch the news and you wonder why all these things happened. And all of a sudden there's a little teleprompter came on and said, this happened because God did this. You know, I mean, it, 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 that's the explanation. The events that you see unfolding before your eyes are happening because the omnipotent sovereign God is on his throne and he willed them to happen. Okay. So again, we say that. We know that, right? But we don't talk like it. <laughs> and I, you know, I feel strong compulsion to go on a tangent. I won't. But we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it that way politically. We act like we have all the solutions. Okay, I, I, I'm not, I just really think we don't have a, we're on the wrong tangent here completely, but um, I'm not a pessimist. I don't think what we'll be will be. I think we should fight for everything we can that's right and good. At the same time, if we believe that God is sovereign and in control, we ought not be in a perpetual state of confusion. And certainly we ought not despair. Right? I don't, I don't care who's where, the heart of the king is still in the hand of the Lord, right? We just don't talk like we believe that God is omnipotent and sovereign is my point. You can have whatever political persuasions and opinions you want to, but one thing you can't alter and change, God's sort of in control of it all. Right? Okay. Well, it would be good if that was reflected in the way we talk. 
and we weren't always so negative and pessimistic, when God's moving His eternal plan uh, one day at a time closer to reality. I'm not saying we should be happy about things. I'm saying this, we ought to understand intellectually what we're witnessing. So he's saying to the people, hey, this is what's happening. I'm in control. Uh, what happened to Babylon via Persia, that, that was me working. So he said, understand, pay attention, my people. I have been at work. I've been orchestrating world events to punish Babylon, to bring you home. I'm in control. Realize that truth. Place your confidence there and understand my relationship to you in light of these things. My relationship to you is not just to correct you and send you away, not just to bring you back arbitrarily, but I have, a, I have an eternal plan in history I am working out to be a redeemer of mankind. And this time in history plays some small role in this eternal plan of redemption. And you get to be a part of it. And this just moves us one more day closer to the millennial reign and eventual eternity with me. And he's saying, if you understand all that, then you ought to get home and do the work. That's the idea. Be a part of my plans. Do what you can do. So as we look at application here these last few minutes, I think they're obvious and already been stated that, you know, God's sovereign. And let me, let me just do this because I know people are curious. And I, I'm going to give you a non-answer to a question. But when we read texts like these with these really cool, colorful creatures in them, okay, we ought not build an angelic theology based on these verses. Okay. I don't know if there's angels on a white horse in heaven standing at the throne waiting to go do God's bidding or not. Okay? It's, it's the way that God's communicating a message. We know there's angelic beings. Ephesians, we know there's principalities and powers. I'm just saying this. Don't lose the story <laughs> because of details we can't fully comprehend. It'd be really cool if those things actually existed this way, right? I mean, I'm all for that. I think there's things like that. I'm just, I'm just saying don't bit a theology of angelic understanding based on verses like this. God's communicating that He is sovereign and He's in control and things happen to His command. That's the big story, okay? If we got that, then we're good. But in terms of application, um, I think here's what we can take away. That today, just as in Zechariah's day, God is in the midst of working out His redemptive and final plan for the consummation of the age. Okay? Now look here. That's still ongoing. God is still working out His plan contemporarily, right now, in the events of history, to bring about the consummation of the age. It's no less true today than it was in Zechariah's day. Their part in history was a little bit more specific than ours in a way. They were to come home and rebuild the temple um, our mission is, is a bit different than that, but I want to say this, we are part of God's plan that is perpetually moving forward. In Genesis, God initiated this plan of the redemption of mankind to rescue and redeem us. He gave us promises in Genesis chapter 3. And He told us that a, a, a Messiah, that a Redeemer would come and crush Satan. Then he brought about the history of Abraham and the, the promise of, to him to make him a great and mighty nation. And then we know that from Abraham came the patriarchs and then ultimately 
uh, the kings, and most notably King David from the tribe of Judah, from which it was prophesied that a Messiah would come. And so then we moved to the kingdom age, and then we, we moved to this age of, of, of the minor prophets where the, the kingdom was lost, and people went into exile. And it's like, wow, the plan's over. No, the plan's not over. God still has this lineage worked out. As a matter of fact, it goes right past this post-exile community all the way down to a man and woman named Joseph. A descendant of David. Here's my point. Is it just like in Genesis and just like for David and Abraham and just like for these people, the same thing is true today for us in the New Testament. This redemptive plan now from wherever it started way back there in Genesis is still ongoing today. And look here, the train's still rolling. And it's still moving. And God's still looking at us and saying, this is what is happening I may not explain to you every detail of how I'm moving the pieces in the world, but understand this, I've got it, I am sovereign, I am in control, and the grand purpose of the universe is to bring about the redemption of creation, and we're still moving that direction. And so God's invitation to us would be not to go out and build a temple, but to go out there and build the kingdom of God. We have a missionary endeavor. We have an evangelistic endeavor. We have the endeavor of perpetuating the kingdom of God. And that's what God wants us to be a part of today. We have a part in God's sovereign plan. We may not see the horses and the chariots at work in the world, but I assure you they are. And what's really great about that is this, is that we have today the Holy Spirit as an agency working for us. So when you and I speak the gospel, we speak the truth, and we speak whatever, those aren't just words issuing forth with our power, but those are the living dynamic words of God going out, accomplishing His purposes with the agency of the Holy Spirit. And so God's saying, my program's still active. Be at work. A second thought is this, is that a proper theology or understanding of who God is and how He works gives incredible direction to our life. In the text tonight and throughout of Zechariah, we are taught about the sovereignty of God, the omnipotence of God, about His redemptive purposes, about how He's bringing everything to a great and grand conclusion. And listen, in understanding these truths about God and how we relate to God, that, that should give us incredible strength and hope in how we live. And again, my point is this, um, it's so cliche, but can I say it to you? We're kind of on the winning side. Amen. Right? Yep. I mean, look up here for a second. No matter what happens to you in this world, you're still on the winning side. No matter how subpar you think your life is, Heaven's coming. No matter how awful the world has been and how you've been cheated or whatever else, Jesus Christ is your Savior. The greatest of experiences are still ahead of us. Forgive me, you are on the winning side. But we don't act that way. We don't talk that way. We don't radiate that positivity. We don't, we don't exude that confidence. We're, we, we don't act like we're on mission. And so again, when I say to you, God is sovereign and He is omnipotent and He has a great purpose that He invites us to be a part of and even empowers us in it. 
okay, look here. That's just not truth in a book. That's supposed to be lived out in our hearts. So we should be a happy, joyful, purpose-driven people. In other words, theology isn't just knowing something. Real theology is living something. It's living that truth out. It should cause us to lean on Him in troubling times more than on human initiative and power. When we face circumstances bigger and beyond us, sometimes we just, you know, we either wring our hands like we do about our country or the world, like, oh, what can be done, whatever else, we feel so small and insignificant. Or we could believe this, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, things might change. But we spend more time complaining than praying. So what do we really believe? That we're the answer? Or that He's the answer? I don't mean to pick on politics tonight. It's just easy to pick on. You think the right candidate is the answer for America? I'm not, I'm not downplaying anything. I'm just saying, think. I mean, seriously. Think. The answer is and has always been God. And if America has ever been more successful because we, we, as a people, have paid greater homage and respect and had greater Christian capital than we do today, the answer is and will always be about God's people interacting in this worldly environment. And if we're feeling our part, He's pretty obligated to fulfill His part. As we move through the redemptive purposes of mankind, which I have no idea what that means necessarily for us as a people, I just trust God. He's got me. Okay, and I don't mean to pick on that one area. It just so easily illustrates our inability to, to really think theologically. In other words, spend all the time you want to reading, having opinions, as long as you match it with your prayer time. Because if you believe in God, then there's, that's where I believe the answer actually is. Realize that God's at work, work, work in a big plan. And He's also working out His plan for each of us. In other words, um, he, he not just bringing the whole plan of redemption to fruition, He's working in our lives to accomplish a purpose as well. In other words, we can trust Him, Romans 8, 28. In other words, if He's bringing all things to a great conclusion for the world, then He's also working all things together for us who are called by His name, who are called according to His purposes. We can trust and should have faith and confidence in His sovereignty and His omnipotence. And number three, and I, I will hasten, is that what God starts, He always finishes. And I like that. Chapter one, hey writers, go out there and tell me what's happening in the world. Well, you know, this is what we see. God wants something to happen in Babylon. In chapter 8, you know, He sends out the writers to finish, finish the job. In other words, it's, it's a completion. It's, it's an explanation of everything that's happened up to this point. You know, um, that's just the nature of God. It's the theology of God. Whatever God initiates and starts, He finishes. Our salvation. Um, some would teach that, you know, we can be saved and lose it. 
But that's not God starting and finishing something. First Peter tells us that we are kept unto the day of salvation. We, God has reservations for us in First Peter. What He started in us, He will finish in us. Um, God says that for us in the New Testament. What He began, the good work He began in us, He will He will continue that until the day of Jesus Christ. We can rest assured that what God starts, He finishes. And I guess the point I want to make to you is He never abandons anything that He starts. Okay, I'm talking about you. You're not lost to God. He started something in you when you were saved. And I want you to get this. And with your cooperation, He'd like to take you somewhere. But many of us are on the side of the road not cooperating. I don't know what that means for you. I know all of us are to be conformed to the image of Christ, but what God starts, He finishes. And I know this, He's trying to make all of us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just want to say to you that if you're a saved person here tonight, God initiated something in you. And I don't know what the end of your life is supposed to be or supposed to look like, but I know this, God has purpose for you. He has a plan for you. He has a good for you. He has opportunities for you. He wants you to make a difference in this world. He's up there. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He, he's given us power and grace in the Holy Spirit. And we just can't look, we can't look so tepidly at our own salvation. Like it's just, it's my name on a piece of paper. Oh, it's much more than that. You're a work. You're a work of God. You're the handiwork of God. And the day He saved you, He set you on a road. He's trying to take your life, your family, somewhere. And I, I want to promise you, no matter what curves you hit, valleys, dips, whatever else, God's not lost on that. He's still using whatever heavenly powers He wants to, to work in the nation and in your life to finish what He started, and He will continue until He takes us home. So let's, let's take some of these great theologies home with us tonight. And let's rethink them. And then most importantly, let's, let's apply these truths to our hearts.